you please join me as I pray? Father, we thank you. We come with anticipation, with the scriptures open, expectant. I am particularly grateful today that the Holy Spirit is real, that he inspired this text, he has preserved this text, he is at work in this room, and so I just say, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you move through this proclamation in a way that touches and encourages and feeds your people. I pray that you would give us clarity about our destination and the ways that it should inform our journey. Help us to be a worshiping people, aware of the worthiness of our King. We bless you and we thank you for what you intend to do. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I think if we could see the final scene of our lives or the final several scenes that it might influence and affect the way that we go on the journey. If you knew who was with you, what you had been doing, what life had looked like, you go, oh, I, I ended up with that person. Sure enough, there they are in the final scene. Or I'm surrounded by these people. I'm in this spot. I got to do this sort of work. If we, if we had access to the final scenes of our life, some of the pivot points and the journey, the hand wringing might be relieved because we go, okay, I, I know how this story goes. And we have this unique privilege as Christians that we actually, we do have access to the final scenes, the ultimate final scenes that as we explore them and, and dig into them and, and then allow it to reshape our journey, we realize that if, if we have access to these scenes and we understand how our story is going to unfold, that it, it actually can inform the pivot points and the journey, how we approach all of the scenes that lead up to that scene. If you've been with us over the last 10 weeks, we've been on this journey together that comes to a conclusion today. We've been calling it Sing, and it's an exploration of the centrality of worship to our lives as Christians, to our identity. It is central and it is crucial that we are worshipers. We've seen it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we've kind of been tracing it throughout the scriptures, and we come today to one of the final scenes. What does it look like when we arrive in glory? What does it look like for us to be worshipers in the last scene? And as we explore that scene, I think it will influence and inform the way that we go on the journey together. What we're gonna see from Revelation chapter five is that the destination of our journey is to total worship. Comprehensive, total, cosmic, overwhelming worship is the final scene. And the reason that we're gonna see is, is because the little lamb is worthy. Because of the worthiness of the lamb, the, the end of our story is total cosmic worship. And what I want to do is to explore this throne room scene of Revelation 5 together in hopes that it would inform our story and our journey and how we're moving towards it. Revelation 5 unfolds in three kind of snapshots that we're gonna see together. They each get introduced by something that is seen or heard. And so we're gonna allow the chapter to kind of unfold in the way that it's been revealed. And we're gonna look at each of those three scenes as we explore this final scene, this final total worship that awaits us as believers. One final note before we plunge in, the, the book of Revelation is a, is 
a single revelation of the glory of Jesus to his best friend, John. John was his best friend while they were on earth. Jesus has since ascended in his resurrected glory to the right hand of the Father and it's been about a generation since he and John were hanging out on the earth. John was a young man when he was with Jesus. He's now an old man. And just before he dies and leaves the earth, Jesus comes back and reveals to him how everything is going to wrap up. And we're getting to peer into one of the most crucial scenes in the book of Revelation, this throne room scene in Revelation 5 to understand our destination and the culmination of our worship. So let's take it one snapshot at a time. The first snapshot is a devastating one. It's the backdrop to the celebration and it's, it's the hard news that makes the beautiful news pop. The hard news that shows up in verse one through four is that no one is worthy. No one is found worthy and this is cause for John to melt, to melt into a pile of tears, to weep and I want us to feel together what it is that he's experiencing at the start of this chapter. Look at verses one through four with me. It says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. It was written within and on the back and it was sealed with seven seals. So this is one of the throne room scenes in the book of Revelation. The throne is mentioned 57 times in the book of Revelation. This is central to the way that the story is told. And what he is seeing in in this moment is that there is one who is seated on the throne. Although there is all chaos and persecution reigning in the first century, John sees that even through all the persecution, there's one who is on the throne and he's seated. He's not worried. He's not scrambling. He's in repose. He's resting because he has all power. And in his right hand is a scroll. The rest of Revelation is going to help us understand that this scroll is God's good purposes that are written and planned out and sealed up. This is purpose and meaning and beauty and God's plan in his right hand. That's what we've got in verse one. And it says, and I saw a mighty angel who was proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The sinking feeling that John is experiencing is this recognition that maybe, just maybe, the suffering and the chaos and the sadness is gonna be the end of the story. Maybe there is someone on the throne who has power, but his plan that is perfect and is written in advance for us, none of us have the capacity to access or to unfold. And John is left in this moment of staring into the abyss of what if, what if the brokenness and the sadness and the struggle is the end of the story because no one is worthy enough to access God's good plan. This is devastating for John. I think in many ways, it it reminds me, Robert, of the philosophy classes we took together. We studied some philosophy in our undergrad together. We've been friends for a lot of years and we sat under the teaching of some of these professors that were really taken with the existentialists, the existential philosophers, Albert Camus and the like. And the great question of the existential philosophers is why not suicide? 
They think that is the most pressing philosophical question. The reason why is because existentialists assume that all that can be known and experienced is it's just what we can see and what we can touch. There's no meaning or purpose beyond what is. And in a sense, this is the abyss that John is staring into. If we can't access the good and perfect plans of God that are gonna prevail in all of the chaos of the world, if all we have is our lived experience, we, like John, ought to weep. We, like Camus, need to answer the question, why not just be done with it? If this is all there is, it's a devastating story. This is what John is wrestling with. Is anyone worthy to access God's good and purposeful plans that work through the heartache of the broken world? And what he finds is that no one is worthy. The question is, is all of our suffering aimless? Is it all just grayscale? There's some bright moments, but generally we just kind of plot along with difficulty because no one's worthy to access the full and the better plan. Is that the end of the story? The first scene in Revelation 5 is one marked by tears because the conclusion is no one is worthy. But it's not where, the, it's not where this chapter ends. The good news bursts onto the scene against this backdrop of weeping and tears. And it's going to come in two ways. I want you to see it in verses five and following. There is a verbal and a visual revelation. And in apocalyptic literature, the verbal, what you hear, and the visual, what you see, are mutually interpretive. They make sense of one another. And so listen for something and look for something in verses five and following. It is the grand and the good news against the backdrop of the potential of aimless suffering. Follow me? Look at verse five. It says this. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's the verbal, and it's soaring in nature. Did you hear it? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is the messianic king with all authority and all power. He's coming, he's conquering. Here he is. And then John turns and he sees the visual. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. There's two words in the Greek, one for the mature large lamb, one for the little baby lamb. This is the second word. A little baby lamb, it could be translated. So he heard, look, the lion. He turns and he's looking for it and he goes, oh, there's a little baby lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Now the number seven, especially in apocalyptic literature, what it means is perfection. And so seven horns is symbolic of he has all power. So the little baby lamb that looks like it has been slain has seven horns. It has all of the power. And it has seven eyes. You see that? Seven eyes means perfect insight or knowledge. So he's got all power. He's got all insight or knowledge. And then it says, not only does he have seven horns and seven eyes, and these are the seven spirits of God that were sent out into all the earth. Now God has a single Holy Spirit, but the idea of using the seven is comprehensive. The fullness of the spirit. So this little lamb has all power and insight that's been birthed by the fullness of the spirit of God. 
And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, now the four living creatures are like the angelic leadership team, and the 24 elders, that's the human leadership team, the 12 representing the 12 tribes from the Old Testament, the 12 apostles representing the New Testament. So 24 elders is like the leader of all of God's covenanted people, Old and New Testament. So this is the angelic and the human leadership team are all together. And when they see the little lamb step in as though slain and take the scroll, this is what they do. It says, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying worthy. The question had been, who is worthy? Now they have found the one who is worthy. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed or purchased a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. God's grand purpose the one that was initiated in Genesis 12 when everything had broken and fallen apart, he came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to have favor on you and through you I'm going to bless all of the nations of the earth, all of the tribes. I'm going to win a people for myself that is global in, in nature. Here we see the culmination of God's purposes being secured by the blood of the lamb and its cause for celebration. The statement in this moment is this, you are not aimless sufferers. You are not aimless sufferers. You are ransomed royalty. This is what the wounds of the little lamb say. Did you catch it? Did you catch that the little lamb, he still has his wounds even in glory? We can rush too quickly past that. One day, we with redeemed physical eyes, resurrected bodies, we are going to look at Jesus the Nazarene. We're going to see him. And do you know that he still will have his wounds? He will bear his scars. He hasn't been wiped clean of them like a glorified body doesn't have scars or reminders of the brokenness. He will have scar prints where the nails were and where the spear went in because the truth is that by the blood of Jesus, he doesn't just wipe away the past. He brings dignity and purpose and beauty to it. He redeems it. He says, look at my wounds. I've come to make all of the broken and sad things right and whole. You are not aimless sufferers. You are ransomed royalty. I have purposes and plans for you. And as it turns out, the greatest power in all the universe is the weakness of sacrificial love. That's what this scene is saying. The lion who roars is the little lamb that was killed. He says, I have shown my power to the world through sacrifice and through love. And as it is poured into your hearts and through your hearts as a kingdom of priests, you become the extension of my power in the world, which is not a clenched fist pounded. It is an open hand crucified. He's saying the good news is this. There is one who is worthy. And it's the little lamb that has been slain. The problem, no one is worthy. Maybe we're just aimless sufferers. The solution, 
He is worthy. You are not an aimless sufferer. You are ransomed royalty. And this is what kicks off the third and final scene where I'd like to spend the, the balance of our time. Total worship erupts. The final scene of your life and of my life if we are in Jesus. The destination of our story is total worship because the little lamb is worthy. And I just want to draw out four marks of total worship. Cosmic, comprehensive, angelic worship that we will participate in. And if we see this, if we lean into this, what we start to realize is that it can and should reshape our stories even now because this is where we are headed. Four marks of total worship that erupt because of the dignity, the value, the worth of the little lamb. The first thing is this. Total worship is fresh. It's fresh. It's like a, a new wellspring of beauty and blessing. Did you hear the song that they sang in verse 9 and 10? This is a theme that we've seen emerge over the last 10 weeks as we paid attention to worship in the scriptures. But in verse 9, what it says is this. They sang a new song. They're so overwhelmed by the worthiness of the lamb that all the songs that have been sung throughout all the years are not sufficient. They say we need some new expression. It is a fresh expression of the worthiness of the lamb in this moment gathered at the throne. We want to be the sorts of people that bring fresh worship, not kind of like the, the warmed over leftovers, but a fresh expression. I'm really excited. Uh, under the leadership of Tyler Ballou and Jason Joy, there was, a, there was a retreat a couple of weekends ago for anyone that's involved in kind of writing around here. It was a writer's retreat. So the folks that help write our liturgies that shape our worship, the folks that are writing... Um, worship songs for us from the worship team they all went away and it was in the name of staying creative and fresh and continuing to think deeply about the words that we're using that they're biblically rooted but fresh expressions of what God is doing and it was a worshipful time it was really special I'm really excited for all of you because in the coming months we're going to get to sing some of the songs that were written over that weekend one I'm particularly excited about goes with the book of Job. I'm going to get to preach through the book of Job in 2024. And there's going to be a fresh song. I think it's going to tend to our souls in some beautiful ways. I love the fact that we together as a family, because of the gifts and the calling of members of our community, we're going to get to sing songs. And we do this with some regularity that no one else on the planet has ever sung together. But we gather and we offer fresh expressions of worship of what God is doing. But listen, you don't have to wait for some gifted person from the worship team to come forward with a song to do that. I would encourage you, even this week while you're driving around town, don't just let your thoughts direct you. Direct your thoughts. Meditate on maybe what we just talked about. I am ransomed royalty. God has called me into his family and I am going to be with him. He's marked me out as a priest to be an extension of his grace when all I was was a broken and unworthy vessel. That is a wild thought. Set your mind on it and then sing him a little ditty. Sing right there in your car. If, if you're in my car, it's gonna be out of tune. It's not gonna be very creative. It won't be a good song. But guess what? The father will love it. He will have never in the history of humanity been worshiped in that way with that song. It will be mine to give to him. 
Why don't you do that? I love the idea of hundreds of vehicles coursing across the city of Houston this week with you at the drivers singing some song that God's never heard before. Total worship is fresh. It's a fresh expression of what God is doing in you and through you. And that's not all. Total worship isn't just fresh, it's rousing. It awakens us. Um, In verse 11 and 12, I want you to see the vastness and the volume of worship. It is rousing when you consider what comes as a result. Look at verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He said, what I saw was a sea of angels, one of which causes people to tremble in fear when they show up, one of which would cause us to fall down like dead people going, oh no, why an angel always shows up in his first words is be not afraid don't be afraid but what what John sees is a sea of innumerable angels and they're calling out with a loud voice this is rousing worship this is worship that would make your heart skip a beat you would catch your breath and go "Ooh, this is loud intense overwhelming total worship is that way now Some worship, it's good that it's meditative and muted. We need that. We need space to think and to consider. And that's, that's important. But if all worship is that way, we're not practicing for heaven. Total worship is rousing, loud. It awakens us. It's appropriate that sometimes we turn up the volume. We've touched this on other weeks over the last 10 weeks. It's important for us to see that our final destination has worship like that. Continue to cultivate anticipation for what's coming by turning up the volume, by expressing yourself, by exploring the angelic celebration that will be loud and rousing. Total worship is fresh, it's rousing, it's unified. (laughs) Verse 13 stirs my imagination. I hope it does the same for you as well. It is a unification of the whole of the created order Because it's almost as if no one can help themselves when Jesus is seen in all of his beauty. Look at verse 13 with me. It says this. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Do you feel the totality of it? He's going heaven, earth, under the earth, sea. This is the idea of like porpoises and narwhals and whales and fish are popping their heads out of the water and they're singing the doo-wops to the worship song that we're bringing. Like everybody's going, do you see it? 
The lamb, the little lamb is on the throne and it says every creature can't help themselves. It's like, it's like one of those scenes in Narnia that C.S. Lewis so beautifully imagines. I'm currently reading uh, Prince Caspian with my six-year-old and we're right at the scene where the, where the great battle is happening and Caspian is outnumbered by Miraz and his evil forces. But Miraz and his men start to throw down their weapons and run away because what Caspian doesn't recognize is that behind him, what is marching onto the battlefield is all of the created order that has been awakened by Aslan, the great king that looks like, like Jesus, the king, the, the lion. And so it's the trees awaken and they're walking to the battle lines because everything is alive and aware and responding to the glory of the king. You see, when Jesus shows up, the worship is going to be so unifying. Every created being is going to be aware that I've been made for him. He's worthy of my worship. Isaiah 55 paints the same picture saying that the mountains are going to sing. They're going to they're going to provide the baseline while the trees are clapping their hands and everybody's just in on like, "Oh, this is what we've been made for. It's our destination." You see, total worship is fresh, rousing, unifying, and lastly, it's face down. It's humble. Total worship is aware that there is only one target. There's only one that receives it. Hear it in verse 14. In verse 14, it says this the four living creatures said, Amen. That means, let it be so. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What's interesting is if we had just been reading straight through, what we just read is that when the Lamb took the scroll from the right hand of the one on the throne, the elders fell down. And the text never tells us that they got back up, but apparently somewhere in the scope of this incredible worship gathering, they've gotten back on their feet, but now they come back to this place where they're face down again. They are low before the king because what they are recognizing is that there's no one else in the whole scope that deserves any of the praise. Only one. The whole of human history is hurtling towards the feet of Jesus the Nazarene. And the moment when he's revealed, when he's worshiped by angels and humans alike, there won't be one of us that's still on our feet going, well, maybe the, maybe the next course is about all that I accomplished. Maybe we're gonna partner in the praise. Maybe I'll get a little bit of it. There will not be one thought about our praise or our glory, we will be face down saying, it's all entirely about him. You see, total worship is face down, aware that there's a sole recipient of the praise. And if this is the final scene, if this is what all of human history is hurtling towards, ought it not to, to inform the journey, the twists and the turns. To my non-Christian friends in the room, I'm so glad you're here. Would you consider Jesus the crucified and resurrected one? Has there ever been anyone else that speaks with authority from beyond the grave? No. 
He conquered the grave and he spoke with authority. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and all the praise is his. Listen, friend, living your life for anyone or anything less is folly. Abandon every other hope. Run to him. Place your trust in him. This is the culmination of human history. Prepare yourself for it now. And to my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, would you begin to consider what it looks like to be a man or a woman of worship? Preparing your heart, recognizing that you are redeemed royalty. You are princes and princesses marked out as priests in the world to extend sacrificial love through your life. This is the calling. And as you position yourself with a recognition that if that's my final scene, I want to live life in a way that, that is organically connected to it. I want to be a worshiper that sings out for the only one who is worthy of my praise. Let's be the sorts of people that recognize the centrality, the crucial nature of worship, and prepare our hearts for the final scene by singing out and by being the royal priesthood that God has called us to be through the grace of his son, Jesus. Ah, let's sing out. It's our final destination, and the lamb is worthy. Let me pray for us. Ah. Jesus, you are our hope, our hero. You are the champion of all history. We thank you for what you've accomplished on our behalf. We thank you that you bear your scars even in glory, that you bring dignity and beauty even to the pain. You are going to redeem every shred of it, and for that we are grateful. As we come to this table, I pray that we would do so with hearts that are on fire for you. That we would come in preparation for the final scene, recognizing that you are the only one worthy of the praise. So we say yes all over again. We receive you and welcome you in this place. We pray that you'd be honored in all that is said and done. We bless you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.